Welcome to Living Bread Radio Presents, a program designed to teach and evangelize about the Catholic faith through various speakers and presentations given in the local listening area. Today's show features Dr. Chris Seaman in part of his five-week presentation, Creation in the Old Testament, a series of the Walsh University Lifelong Learning Academy. Today's show is titled, Decreation and Recreation, Part 3, recorded in October 2013. And now, Dr. Chris Seaman. But anyway, you have this famous story about a mother and seven sons, all of whom refuse to give in to the king's demands to eradicate who they are. And what is interesting from our theme of creation is the language she and her sons use to testify to the king, to bear witness, which is what the term martyr means, to bear witness, to why they refuse to comply with his commands. And so he writes, The mother was especially admirable and worthy of honorable memory. Although she saw her seven sons perish within a single day, she bore it with good courage because of her hope in the Lord. She encouraged each of them in the language of their ancestors. Filled with a noble spirit, she reinforced her woman's reasoning with a man's courage and said to them, I do not know how you came to be in my womb. It was not I who gave you life and breath, nor I who set the order of elements within each of you. Therefore, the creator of the world, who shaped the beginning of humankind and devised the origin of all things, will in his mercy give life and breath back to you again, since you now forget yourselves for the sake of the law. Notice that same idea of forgetting. Antiochus wants them to forget who they are, but she says forget yourselves as an act of asserting who you are, that you are creations of God, both as human beings and as Israelites. And when her, her last son, the youngest, you know, the tenderest uh, son comes up. She again exhorts him. She says, my son, have pity on me. I carried you nine months in the womb and nursed you for three years. And it reared you and brought you up to this point in your life and have taken care of you. I beg you, my child, to look at the heaven and the earth. So look at creation. See everything that is in them. And recognize that God did not make them out of things that existed. Here we have the doctrine of creation ex nihilo for the first time. And in the same way, the human race came into being. Do not fear this butcher, but prove worthy of your brothers. Accept death so that in God's mercy I may get you back along with your own brothers. So in other words, the king is physically decreating these martyrs, but God will recreate them through resurrection. Here's where we first get the doctrine of resurrection expressed. And so the young boy, in the most dramatic speech of all, uh, when the king sort of offers him, don't kill yourself, don't throw your life away. Look, I'll give you, I'll give you great uh, honor in my kingdom if you but comply and eat a little pork. And the little boy says, what are you waiting for? I'm not going to obey your command. I obey the command of the law that was given to our ancestors through Moses. But you, who have contrived all sorts of evil against the Hebrews, will certainly not escape the hands of God. For we are suffering because of our own sins. Here's this same sense of we've done something wrong. And if our Lord is angry with us for a little while to rebuke and discipline us, he will again be reconciled with his own servants. But you, unholy wretch, you most defiled of all mortals, do not be elated in vain and puffed up by uncertain hopes when you raise your hand against the children of heaven. You have not escaped the judgment of the almighty, all-seeing God. For our brothers, after enduring a brief suffering, have drunk 
of ever-flowing life under God's covenant. So there's the reference to the creation of Israel through a covenant. But you have drunk the judgment of God. You will receive just punishment for your arrogance. I, like my brothers, give up body and life for the laws of our ancestors, appealing to God to show mercy soon to our nation, and by trials and plagues to make you confess that he alone is God, and through me and my brothers to bring an end to the wrath of the Almighty that has justly fallen on our whole nation. So think back to last week when we were talking about the theology of sacrifice. What does sacrifice do? Sacrifice in a, in a situation where the human divine relationship is strained, sacrifice heals it. And more than that, it heals it precisely because it heals the damage that sin has done to the world. So here we have the sons offering themselves as sacrifices, right? as though they were animals to be offered on an altar of atonement. So here we have, again, the notion of atonement, right? That should be familiar to Christians. That's how we understand Jesus' death. It comes from this. This is the first evidence that Jews were thinking these thoughts, and it had to do with God's going to reward me with resurrection. He's going to give back what the tyrant takes from me, but he's also going to reward me by rewarding our people, by saving the people. So inasmuch as atonement is the mechanism by which creation keeps is sustained, so too the martyrs are creators. They are co-creators with God of this outcome that they seek. And so we have the Maccabean rebellion that follows from this, uh, in which the deaths of the martyrs empower um, the, the militants to fight off these Seleucids and eventually gain political independence from, from them for Israel for about a century. But before we go on to that conclusion, I want to raise one other important text that has to do with creation that came out of the persecution, and that's the book of Daniel. So the book of Daniel, which is in the prophets in the Christian Bible and among the writings of the Jewish Bible, the book of Daniel tells a story about Jews in the court of a foreign ruler back in the battle Babylonian days. And it shows how various, they experienced various pressures, some official, some by conniving courtiers, to force them to forget themselves, to forget how, who God created them to be. Right? So they resist the various pressures of assimilation. So these are models for the later martyrs. Chapters 7 to 12 of, of Daniel, that's the second half of the book, is what's called an apocalyptic text. It is a survey of human history, or at least of Israel's history, from the time of the Babylonian exile up until the persecution of Antiochus in the second century BC. And it casts this again in the language of creation. The key vision, the first of these apocalyptic visions, is chapter 7 of Daniel. The seer says, I, Daniel, saw in my vision by night the four winds of heaven stirring up the great sea. What does that sound like? Wind stirring up the sea? That's Genesis 1, verse 2 and 3, right? Before God does anything, there's a wind or the Spirit of God stirring up the sea. So the vision begins, we're back at the beginning of creation, but something goes wrong. Instead of an orderly ecosystem emerging out of this chaotic ocean, chaos erupts into history. Four beasts, four great beasts, monsters came out of the sea, as they always do, right? Remember, 
week one, it's the sea that's the source of all the monsters. So the monsters come again. And uh, then we're given a description of the monsters and what they do in their violence towards the rest of creation. Then about midway through the vision, Daniel says, As I watched these beasts, thrones were set in place, and an ancient one took his throne. The ancient one is God. So if, if you ever wonder where the idea of God as a man with a white beard comes from, it comes from Daniel. Okay, so you have this description of the divine throne, God and his court sitting in judgment on these chaotic beasts. So here we have the traditional scenario in the Psalms where God is the one who fights against chaos. But then he says, as I watched, the, the beasts were put to death, their dominion was taken away. And uh, then the final, the climax of the vision, he says, uh, I saw one like a son of man, that is to say one like a human being, coming with the clouds of heaven. So history begins with chaos erupting from the ocean. History ends with a human, a human not a bestial figure, descending from the heavens. This human figure comes before God, is presented before him, and Daniel says, to him was given dominion, glory, and kingship, that all peoples, nations, and languages should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion, shall not pass away, and his kingship is one that shall never be destroyed. So this is what history looks like. Sort of an abortion of creation. The world, rather than being turned into the creation God wants, is turned into a bloodbath. And then, at the end, God judges the offenders and installs a new ruler, right? a humane ruler, if you will, to rule eternally. Daniel, at this point, says to his angel friend, because he has, you need an angel to interpret visions like this, he says, what does this mean? And the angel says, well, the four beasts are basically four kingdoms. They're the four, and, and if you, we read further into the various visions of Daniel, we find that these kingdoms are basically the, the, the foreign rulers who have dominated Israel since things went bad with the demise of the house of David and the first temple. The Babylonians are beast number one. The Medes are beast number two. The Persians, who actually I guess are now negatively coded here, are beast number three. And beast number four are the Greeks. The, the last of those uh, of the, the sort of horns of this beast represents Antiochus, the guy who's persecuting us now. God's going to destroy it all. He's going to He's going to eliminate those sources of chaos within his creation and replace it with an orderly, humane form of human relatedness. This kingdom, right? This everlasting kingdom, uh, which is not just the, this son of man figure. is not just an individual figure. He's also a collective representation for the people of the holy ones of the Most High, which is how Daniel refers to Israel. So Israel will rule, or at least will not be ruled by bestial empires anymore. That's what recreation looks like. And again, if you think of that in terms of this experience of persecution the Jews are undergoing at this time, you can well understand how that might be good news. Um, so just to round out the story, those are the dramatic creation texts I wanted to look at tonight. The Greeks, again, are replaced by the Romans, who are replaced, uh, or Greeks are replaced by the Hasmoneans, the, the, the Judah, Judas Maccabeus and his brothers who delivered them from the Greeks. Uh, after they rule for a while, the Romans take control. The Romans put Herod the Great in power. Herod expands the temple, the second temple, but then the Romans destroy it in the, in the war of 66 to 70 AD. 
and out of that come then new responses. How do we deal with this new catastrophe of this temple that's been eradicated? Um, Jews had various responses. Christians had various responses. Both communities, as they were emerging, could draw upon this wealth of imagery that we've talked about tonight. They could both draw upon these basic explanations for why bad things happen and how it is all part of God's ongoing efforts to recreate. Uh, just to take one element of the solutions that the rabbis and the church fathers came up with, uh, for the rabbis, and actually both, the, the element of the solution that is held in common between Jews and Christians is where did the presence of God go? Right? The presence of God, the glory of God dwells in the temple, but the temple's not there anymore, so where is it? The answer of the rabbis is that the presence, which is no longer called the glory of God, but the Shekinah, which literally means the presence, uh, the Shekinah dwells wherever Torah is studied, wherever the Torah, the covenant, is studied by, by basically rabbinic scholars. Right? So this was the rabbis' sort of explanation of the, the meaning of, of their new movement that was coming to sort of emerge out of the, the wreckage of of Second Temple Judaism. For Christians, the, uh, the, the glory of God in the temple um, doesn't actually move, it's simply redefined as Jesus, as the body of Jesus. Uh, especially in John's Gospel, where Jesus is described as the tabernacle walking around. And when people see him, they see the glory of God. Uh, so in a sense, it's relocated to Jesus, or it's relocated to Torah study. But in both cases, it never leaves. It is, continues in spite of, of catastrophe and tragedy, in spite of the absence of that physical sign of the temple, it is present in the world with God's people. And I think I'll end there and then invite some questions and comments. We have about 20 minutes. So are there any questions or comments or, or uh, observations about this, this theme of how do we grapple with the realities and the messiness of, of history? Yes, sir. The question is, what period of his, in what when was Daniel written? I assume that's what you mean. When did it come into being as a book? Uh, it came into being as a book that we now have it in the year 165 BC. That's pretty precise. The reason why it can be precise is because Dan, the end of Daniel gets his prophecy a bit wrong because he has a prophecy of the death of Antiochus and has him die in the wrong place. He has him die on the coast between the Mediterranean Sea and Zion rather than in, in Iran where he actually ended up dying. So apparently this book was, was put together during the persecution, before it was ended. Um, and so it envisions, you know, this is, as Daniel puts it, the end of days, which doesn't mean sort of a terminal end, rather it means the end of empire, right? The end of this, this state of deviance, you know, from the way creation should be, it will all be solved, and then eternally uh, the, uh, the, the people of God will live on forever and ever, amen. Um, well, again, history interrupts that narrative because the Greeks stick, stuck around for a while, and then the Romans came, and, and actually, to give you a sense of how the, the symbolism is used, when the Romans come along, the Jews just recycled the book of Daniel to apply the fourth beast to mean Rome. Right? The Christians piggybacked on that in the book of Revelation where Rome is the beast. That's all just the book of Daniel being updated, recycled, 
um, applied to a new situation, a very similar situation, but the quick answer is 165 BC. Now, okay, so continuing that question, the first, well, the book of Daniel is set in the 6th century BC, back in the Babylonian period. Um, the tales about Daniel, the, sort of the, the tales of court intrigue, which we find in the first six chapters, very likely predate the, uh, the Antiochian persecution. They're, they're very likely traditional tales. How far back we don't, they go, we don't know, but they're traditional tales uh, that, that were sort of drawn together as part of this attempt to synthesize human history at this moment with the apocalyptic visions. The writers of Daniel were actually a group of people who called themselves the Maskilim, um, which literally means in Hebrew, those who make other people wise. And uh, there's a passage in the book of Daniel where it says, the Maskilim will make many wise. And wise means you, you learn how to resist the forces of disintegration. You learn how to resist the forces uh, that are trying to undo, you, undo your identity as a people. And they resisted this by offering an alternative view of history, right? which is in the visions, but also an alternative set of examples. Be like Daniel and his friends who resisted you know, this kind of assimilation. Um, it's probably, to, to finally answer your question, it's very unlikely that the book of Daniel dates back to the time period of the Babylonian period because it gets the Babylonian history all wrong, as, it, as the wrong sequence of kings. So it's very likely that these court tales sort of evolve in an oral context where, just like in most oral stories, you know, names change, dates change, because the point is the story itself, and it's not a historical record. Uh, but at some point, the stories achieve a kind of solid form that they do now, probably after the period in which they talk about, uh, and then eventually they get associated with this group that's trying to promote uh, active resistance martyrdom to this effort to eliminate the Jews. And so you tell the story about the heroes of the past and you call upon them to, uh, to help the present. Uh, that's, that's what most scholars would say. Other questions or comments? Yes, sir. Okay, so this question is, why would we consider the Persians one of the four beasts? Well, first of all, because they're identified as one of the four beasts in Daniel. But also because we have to remember that the very positive view of Cyrus that you have in Second Isaiah isn't necessarily representative of all Jewish experience. Um, maybe Cyrus paid for it to be written. I mean, it's very glo it glowingly describes him just as the Babylonian text did. Um, but we have to remember that you know every biblical text is written from one human perspective. It contains a divine message, but it's written within a human perspective. Um, for example, uh, in the book of Ezra, the priest Ezra, who is an appointee of the Persian Empire, who's sent uh, to sort of set things in order in their province of Judea, he, in one of his um, prayers, his lamentations, he laments how we are slaves. We are enslaved to this foreign power, even though they've done some nice things for us. So you can expect, just as in any colonized society, you'll have collaborators, uh, champions, critics, um, you know, enemies, you'll have a whole spectrum. We have some of these things represented in what survived in the Bible. And um, so that's, that's all we can really say is that it's, you know, the, the Persians are part of this map of history that Daniel sets forth. Yes, ma'am. The question is, is there anything, in, is there any uh, example in the Bible 
where, where what I've been calling decreation, the bad stuff, where that serves some sort of divine purpose, whether it's part of God's own activity. Um, I'm sure I could probably find some. God says, I create both good and evil. In, uh, in, Isaiah, in Second Isaiah, it says, I create everything. Everything comes from me. Uh, people don't understand it often, but everything does come from me. So you can probably find some passages that would certainly take a broad view that even the bad stuff is somehow working some sort of providential purpose. You know, you have to destroy before you can recreate, maybe. Um, but there are, of course, other, other things like, you know, <laughs> the persecution of the Jews by Antiochus, which certainly, certainly would not be seen by any of the authors as having any positive or divinely ordained thing. Again, when bad stuff happens, it's usually just that God is, 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 is stepping back and saying, I'm not going to help you. If, you, if you're not going to live up to your vocation, I'm, I'm under no obligation to, to defend you uh, until we restore our relationship. And so, in, in that sense, it comes from God in the sense that it's God's inaction that, that allows those things to happen. Whether it serves a more deeper providential purpose, you know, who knows? I think probably some statements in Isaiah you could, you could come into that. Because again, Isaiah is so um, totalizing. Totalizing meaning it, 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 it everything that happens comes from me. Because I'm the only thing that's here. I alone am God. There is no other. So if that's your message, you're not going to... It's going to be very difficult to find some sort of opponent out there that can c- create things against my will. Nothing can be created against my will, says God in there. Other comments or questions? Yes, ma'am. Who translated the Torah into Greek? Uh, his name was Ptolemy. P-T-O-L-E-M-Y. Ptolemy II, Philadelphus. He lived in the 3rd century B.C. So he was the second of the kings of the, of the, in Egypt of the Ptolemaic dynasty. And he is the one who is often famed as the sponsor and founder of the Alexandrian Library, the great library of Alexandria that sort of tried to collect all wisdom in the world. And if you want to read the story, the legend about it, it's, it's called The Letter of Aristeus. I think I actually mentioned Aristeus in my outline. It's, a, it's not a biblical text. It's a, Jewish, uh, it's a Jewish writing of this period, which sort of gives an account of how this happened. Again, there's probably plenty of legend in there, but the fact remains that it was translated. And recently, a Jewish scholar who has written on this uh, has argued that, it, that the idea that the, that the king would actually have sponsored this makes sense. She actually thinks that that, that part of the story is indeed true, that you would, it would make sense that uh, the king, because the majority of Jews at that time lived in Egypt, not in Palestine. So if, if most of your subjects... Uh, most of your Jewish subjects live in Alexandria, in Alexandria and they only speak Greek, it's a good act of government to provide them with a translation of their scriptures they can actually read. Uh, so we don't, we don't know everything about how it came about, but uh, we have at least the legend of Aristeus, who is the, the guy who tells the story about how it happens. Okay, then quick advertisement. Next week we'll do our final talk, and we're going to look at the other great impact of Greek culture upon creation, namely Greek philosophy and how that influenced wisdom literature, the wisdom literature of the Bible. So we're going to talk about creation and wisdom to wrap things up next week. So see you all next week, hopefully.
For more information about the Walsh University Lifelong Learning Academy, log on to walsh.edu. We hope that you've enjoyed this production of Living Bread Radio Presents. For an audio archive of this program, go to livingbreadradio.com and click on the programming menu. This has been a production of Living Bread Radio in Canton, Ohio. Join us again next week at the same time for more Living Bread Radio Presents.